Richard Niles. Dave Brubeck, designated a living legend by the Library of Congress, was one of the most active and popular musicians in both jazz and the classical worlds. With a career that spanned over six decades, his experiments in odd time signatures, improvised counterpoint, polyrhythm, and polytonality make him an innovator's innovator. When I heard Brubeck would be in London for a series of concerts, I immediately booked an interview for the BBC as part of my series, The New Jazz Standards. Brubeck talks about his early experimental octet, studies with Darius Mio, his musical influences, how cool jazz isn't cool at all, and how his admirers included Miles Davis, John Coltrane, Duke Ellington, and Stan Kenton. He also tells some very amusing stories about his dear friend and brilliant musical partner, Paul Desmond. This was so much fun, and so I'm so happy to bring you this rare interview with a very nice musical giant who always did everything in his own sweet way. Dave Brubeck. My favorite pianist is George Shearing and Mary McPartman, and before that, first British pianist I heard, blind, Alec Templeton. You ever hear him? You should listen to him. He's before everybody else. That, that, uh, I mean, before George and before Mary. Well, what was like the first piano player that you heard and you thought, wow, I'd like to do that? Oh, I guess that's more. Yeah. Although the, Billy Kyle was the first I Remember the Billy Kyle trio in the 30s? Yeah, that was the first guy that knocked me out. And Fats. And it was so great being that Billy was first real great jazz pianist that I did a duet with him with Louis Armstrong on a piece called Summer Song. And I, I thought, boy, I really arrived with the first guy that I heard. Here I am recording with. Uh, who was the first musician who influenced you to be adventurous, shall we say? I mean, you are the adventurous guy, you're the experimental guy who developed all kinds of great stuff, but who were the artists who influenced you when you were younger? Tatum was very important. And then I worked with Cleo Brown. Do you remember her? 1935 Decca. Marion was listening to her here in England, and one of her first hits was called Looky, 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 Here Comes Cookie. I got to work with her when I was 19. And she was a real influence on me. She just had a, what you call, kind of a rolling bass. I could never really get how she did it. Her, her left hand was phenomenal. Boogie woogie. When Fats died, the guys in the band asked her to take Fats' place so you know she could play. <laughs> you were part of a group of guys who were very forward-looking people. Now, can you tell me something about that group of people? And, of course, I'm getting to the Octet record, the creation of that incredible record. And as you said on the liner notes, you know, it's just, we can all be thankful that somebody brought along a recorder. You've got to go back to World War II. When I got back from overseas, my drive was to go study with Darius Meal in 46. I, I'd been gone almost four years the last couple of years in really isolation and 
Patton's army in Europe and was always dreaming about going back to study with Neil. So I did that, and some of my friends also went to Dave Van Creek on tenor, Bill Smith, Paul Desmond on, on alto, came from San Francisco State, and Cal Jader from San Francisco State, but Bob and Dick Collins, the five that were students at Mino were Smith, Dick Collins, Dave Van Creek, Jack Weeks, and myself. And we added three guys from San Francisco State. We were all just thinking about how we could learn to be composers. We were jazz musicians, not in any way classical or classically trained. Bill Smith was, was somewhat classically trained. Mio was the one great composer that was for jazz being used in composition. And so it worked out wonderfully. What kind of things were, were fascinating you at that time? Polytonality, polyrhythm were the two things I was most fascinated with. At that time, you, you had the, right in the San Francisco Bay Area, had basically two schools. The ones, the young composers following Schoenberg and the ones following Stravinsky, Mio Bartok, Shostakovich, and Mio not particularly pushing Schoenberg, but uh, loving Albert Berg. He loved him, so he wasn't narrow. He said, this is so great, but he would often say, you're using your compositional approach too mathematically. And he'd say, did you bring your slide rule to school today? And he'd gradually try to get these away from Schillinger. Do you remember Schillinger, sir? And there, there were guys in this class that knew so much more than, than I did and were so much better trained, better trained than the octet guys. And Neil was always pushing the octet guys. So he heard what you were doing to the octet? Oh, he, he was responsible for it. He got us our first concert on the Mills campus for the girls. Then we went to College of Pacific, my alma mater, with the octet. And then we'd play free any place that anybody'd have us. And if we got a joint job, we usually got fired the first night. <laughs> it was a rough period financially, but one of the greatest periods in my life for music. And each class, We'd write things and bring it, and then he he said, "How many jazz musicians in class?" And I thought, "Oh man, here we're going to be asked to leave." So we raised our hands, and he said, "I want you to write all your fugues and counterpoint for the jazz instruments." That answers your question. That's how the octet started. Being that last week we recreated the octet with some of my students on the same stage where we were 50 years before. The whole octet book had been lost in a flood in Australia. Oh, such great music. Never to be heard again. 
Chicago Jazz Festival last year said, we want to recreate the octet. So they got an arranger that arranged for the Chicago Jazz Band. But this man arranged a lot of the things that they use with, with the Bill Russo Band. He took the recording of the octet and he wrote curtain music, which was my opening. It's less than a minute long. The Way You Look Tonight, which to this day, I think is my best jazz arrangement. And when I hear that thing, I can't think that I thought that well. Because it had a lot of new things in it, moving constantly, like giant steps years later with doing it. It had the bridge and the first eight being played together simultaneously. That hadn't happened too much in jazz, I don't think. But these are devices that would come from Mio's influence. You know, bring your themes back at the end. Bill Smith's uh, schizophrenic scares of you ever heard yeah, yeah, yeah. That's out. And, and uh, Jack Weeks prisoner song. Why oh, isn't that out? That's the way we were writing. We lost all. All this stuff was lost. Um, but but you're saying it's all been transcribed now. It's all been only these things that were recorded uh, are being transcribed. And you but you're you're doing new recordings of, of these pieces. Yeah, I, I hope so. My students are doing that. Yeah. Good luck to them. Yeah. And I'll tell you, they know they really got to work to play those, that book. Because the thing that impressed me about the record, I mean, I, I listen to it quite often because I love that whole idea of music. The thing that impresses me about it is that it sounds like so relaxed. Yeah. The music is, is dense and complex, but at the same time, uh, it still has, uh, it just has the feel of the players were of such a high quality. And mm -hmm. it sounds relaxed. I mean, Paul Desmond sounds relaxed all the time anyway, but I mean, everybody seemed to have a thing of not, it didn't sound forced at all. It didn't sound stilted. It didn't sound like these guys were sweating. It sounded, I mean, I'm sure it wasn't that way. I'm sure when you recorded it, it was. Well, we would have recorded under the poorest of circumstances. Maybe one take and no editing. So it's what you hear is what you get. Well, I'm glad when I got it. <laughs> yeah. um, let me move just a little bit forward then and say that um, obviously you are regarded as a major uh, mover in the cool jazz or West Coast jazz movement. Now obviously because of you and your friends having very strong intellectual basis as well as emotional involvement in the music. That label of cool jazz, I mean, number one, where did that really come from? And number two, were you guys feeling that you were part of a team of guys who were all going in the same direction? Yeah, that guys did. But I figured that the label of cool was not right. If you got the old recording of Look for the Silver Lining and the other side, that's so hot. I mean, there was a quartet that was really driving nothing cool about it. 
I didn't understand why we're labeled cool when you listen to some of this stuff. And we were playing every night like we were frantic. You couldn't say this is a cool group, you know. Well, I've made that comment about a lot of music that's labeled cool jazz, but then uh, people say, well, the label of cool doesn't mean that it's unemotional. It means that you keep your cool in the most emotional of times. So that there's all right. So that, which which I like, at, you know, because I I'm a big fan of all the uh, practitioners of the cool school. Yeah. And, and I agree with that aspect of it because you've got lyrical, emotional music, but you've also got the coolness of the intellect on top of it, which which informs the music. And I think that's that's a very hip thing. That's the thing that fascinates me about the music is that you especially could be so completely melodic, which made what you did accessible, even though there was a kind of really active intellect going on at the same time. And I think most people, they like to label things, you know, they like to pigeonhole people. And so they like to have some kind of a little cliche to hang on people. But the truth is that there's a lot going on. And the lay public just wants to say, oh, yeah, this is cool. You know, they want to have some simple way to talk about it. But the thing that impresses me is the intellect as well as the other thing. You know, we got around that. When I do a concert, we would probably open with arrangements of standard tunes, so you wouldn't scare the public. Then we would do compositions, which would scare the public. Uh, I'll give you an example of the kind of stuff that's lost forever. When, when you have a girl singer with the band, what do you think of a girl with perfect pitch that can sing anything you put in front of her? But what's put in front of her is E. e. Cummings. <laughs> now what's the public going to think? And that would be our girl singer. And she was a student at Mills College, Dorothy Owenessian. When she went to New York, everybody hired her because she walked into any studio without rehearsal and could sing any difficult thing. That was our girl singer. Now you've got a different approach to what it an audience is expected to hear. Then the third section, we'd have a jam session. Then you see these crazy guys that have just done these compositions with a girl singer doing E.E. Cummings, just jamming like what they're used to, only I think a, a little more advanced. So we divided it in, into three sections. I'd love to hear that. Did you record the girls? We never did. I should have loved to hear that. Oh, yeah. I'm going to ask Bill Smith if he's got any of those original charts or did everything get lost. You were saying how there's this intellectual. But you see, we were all joint musicians. This is what people can't understand. We had grown up playing in dime dances, strip joints, any place we could eke out a living, and yet the guys were all brains studying, just trying to improve all the time. I don't know how you describe a, a bunch of guys like that, and then go out and jam all night and be another person. You're not trying to prove anything. You're just blowing your heart out. It's not.
sounds like you had a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. It was a great time. When you formed your quartet and then released the extremely influential Take 5 album, there were other records that came out around this time, too. Quite obviously, the Octet record predated the Miles' Birth of the Cool record. Yeah. Well, exactly. I rest my case. <laughs> and, and then, later on, the Take 5 record came out at about the same time that Miles did Kind of Blue and about the same time that Coltrane came out with his record. There's something special about that particular period where musicians were all talking about trying new things. I mean, you'd already been doing new things for 10 years. Those guys were listening to me. Cecil Taylor was listening. And all you have to realize is that the guys that were really going to do the experimental things were dropping by the club. Kenton was coming in. I love Stan Kenton and all the guys in his band. They drop in. Ellington would drop in. Penny Goodman. Here we are in San Francisco. But they would talk about these crazy guys in San Francisco. And they'd go back to New York. Gradually, more people started being interested. I remember we were always broke. So I, I went to the union and I, uh, musicians union, and I said, you know, we never get any jobs because our group was too radical to, to be hired. So you have this rule here that when you play certain halls, there have to be so many union musicians in the pit. And I said, you know, a lot of times those guys don't even play. And yet you pay them. Why don't you let my octet go and be in the pit? At least we'll get scale, something to live on. So they, they said, well, uh, Woody Herman's coming in, and you can have that job. And it was in, in a beautiful symphonic hall. So we sat up in the pit. We were playing some of our wild stuff. You could see guys' heads peeking out from behind the curtain and God, they were the greatest guys in the world, you know, Terry Gibson, Vibes, and the Four Brothers guys, and this wonderful pianist turned gray when he was 20 years old, but he, he just passed away. They're all wondering, what's going on in the pit? And <laughs> that, that way we get to be known, you know, that was a great night of our lives because we had a jazz audience that came to hear Herman. They didn't, didn't know we were even going to be there, and they could have cared less because we were fighting a local situation where in San Francisco, there's a very intellectual climate in the University of California in Berkeley. All those eggheads guys thought that the only jazz was New Orleans. And so what we were doing was almost like breaking the law or something. But when Herman or somebody like that or Kenton would like us, then they pay a little attention to us. Charlie Mingus liked me, which helped. And Kid Ori. It, it, it was sure enough a uphill battle 
and we go play any place free or anything. And gradually, because of Neil having this play for his students, we start playing other universities. Then the critics would make stupid remarks like, well, we have a, a college following. Like we never played a joint, you know, in our lives. That's, that's how we existed. And we opened up the college. I'm going back to the 50th anniversary of jazz at Oakland in a few months, which really broke open that whole college thing. But at the same time, we're playing the Apollo in Harlem in the Howard Theater in Washington, where they don't want to write that. They're just saying, we have a college following. We had a, a jazz following. All you have to do is look at the polls. Were you aware throughout your career of a kind of a slightly racial prejudice against white jazz musicians from critics? That developed. In the 30s, I, I didn't sense anything like that. In the 40s, no. And then gradually it started happening in the 50s. And it was terrible. And who usually got it? I remember having a conversation with Jerry saying, you know, you and I have always tried to bring all the musicians together regardless of any racial things or anything. We're the ones getting it. Why are they, you know, taking it out on us when we've been out fighting for equality and yet we're the targets? Do you think it was because you were successful? Maybe. Critics always hate anyone who's successful because they think, well, therefore they can't be any good. Yeah. In order to be, you know, critically acclaimed, you have to be starving in a garret. Yeah. Of course, you did start starving a garret before, and, and it was only later in the, in the, I guess, the 50s that you started becoming successful, being able to have lunch. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. I'd like to talk a little bit about Paul Desmond, because there are so many stories about his humor. I mean, his music, we know, the guy is just the greatest, but there are so many stories about his humor, and I was wondering if you could give our listeners your own personal favorite Paul Desmond story. Oh, oh so many. You know, um, for instance, Paul thought he was Jewish. He lived that thought all his life, and his family was Bohemian. Just before Paul died, he was talking to me, and he was breaking up, and he said, you know, I'm not Jewish. <laughs> I'm not even half Jewish. I'm not Jewish at all. I've lived my whole life thinking I was half Jewish or Jewish. And he, he, he really thought that that was, was funny. One of the funniest stories is that we're in 1958, the first year we came to England, we went on to behind the Iron Curtain State Department. And uh, so we're in Turkey, and we're getting ready to go to Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, East and West Pakistan, India. And Paul could not go to Iran, 
passport says I'm Jewish. So I can't go. He says, that makes me feel so bad that I don't get to go with you to Iran and Iraq. And he's breaking up laughing. He said, I'll meet you after you guys get out of Iran and Iraq. Uh, we'll join up again. And I think I'll go to Lebanon. That is supposed to be the greatest resort place. It's supposed to even be better than the Riviera. And I've got a hotel reservation on the beach, and you'll be in Iran and Iraq. So he gets one of his favorite girlfriends to join him in Lebanon, and he's laughing and saying, Oh, I feel sorry for you guys. I'll be there on the beach having all this fun. So the first morning he wakes up and he hears all this noise and racket. And he has a balcony overlooking the beach. And he looks out and it's the United States Marines landing on the beach. <laughs>
baseline is going down chromatically, which in a way becomes 12 tone. And it seemed to work, and it seems rather than being intellectual, it is emotional. I'm always very afraid of writing a 12 tone melody and getting too intellectual. In your own sweet way, there's a tune that is played by jazz musician who dares to play it. And uh, when you wrote that piece originally, what were you thinking about at the time? We were working with the old quartet, not with uh, Joe Morello and Eugene Wright, but was prior to that. And after the concert that night, Paul Desmond said to me, all we do is play standards. we got to hire somebody to write some original material. And I said, well, Paul, I'll write two originals in a half hour. And I did, and one of them was in your old sweet way. Nice. (laughs) But we had uh, been playing standards because the object was starved. We just couldn't make any money. And then I started the trio, which is the rhythm section of the octet. Cal Jader, who was one of the greatest musicians I've ever known, natural, and Ron Crody on bass. When I started the trio, I only played standards. I was tired of not having any money. And at this point, I'm having a family. So I had to figure out a way. I'd slip in little things, like I'd sing, and in the rain, I'd sing. And in the rain, but I go six, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, two, three, four, five, six. So I'm in six, which most guys are not playing in. And in in the middle of a standard, I I slip in things like that. Have, have you ever noticed that? Very definitely, and yeah. that's what makes it fun to listen to. Yeah. Obviously, other people bought that, too. Yeah. <laughs> Are there some contemporary musicians that you enjoy listening to today? Uh, you know Chucho Valdez? Yeah. Ever since he was a kid, I knew he was a giant. And he's getting stronger and stronger and stronger. I think he might become one of the greatest pianists that ever lived. I think so much of it. And then there's a whole bunch of other players that I like a lot. Yeah. I'd like to hear your music. Oh, yeah, well, you will. I'm going to force it on you. Whenever I do this show, no one goes away empty-handed. Oh, okay. Radio Red.